Uh, what I have to share this evening has to do with mission and outreach. And I in no way mean for this message to be a chastisement, but an encouragement. I have a burden for my own family and how we can impact the uh, lost and unsaved people in our communities and in these communities around the world. And this has been heavy on my mind, and I was given an assignment that I shared at the uh, Olive Branch Mennonite Mission Board weekend a few weeks ago in Lancaster, and I just feel that I would like to give that to you here. And uh, to be an encouragement and not, this is not chastisement, please don't feel that way. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, <clears throat> And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing their white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Every tribe, every nation, every kind of people, not just our kind of people, every kind of people, and so this evening, I'm so thankful for a loving Heavenly Father every time I read this verse, that my race, my clan, my family are recipients of God's grace. And the blood of His Son was adequate to pay the price for the sins of my ancestors and me and my children and my children's children as God tarries. Yes, some of us have had more opportunity to know Christ, but just because you and I may have come from a long line of godly people and godly families, all that does is makes us more accountable. We have a tremendous responsibility to tell and to demonstrate to these races, clans, and families and individuals who have either lost their way or have never known the way to spiritual wholeness and eternal life. Now, Grace and I and Thomas live in the coastal plains of South Carolina. And that's a predominantly agricultural economy of cotton, peanuts, and pine plantations. Quite a few of our church families, however, are involved in dairy. And now more recently, chicken houses, poultry houses are starting to sprout up around the country like weeds in the garden after a warm summer rain. And um, that's what Thomas does, poultry. In October of this past fall, 2015, Anticipation was running high to begin harvesting what looked like a very good crop of cotton and peanuts. And then it started to rain. The first rain was 13 inches. And in our area, that's what we got. But to the north and to the east of us, they got 23 inches in one rain. And it rained for many days, a little bit every day. For over two weeks, it rained every day. The sun seldom sh shone. And so much all through October, November, and December, we had over three feet of water, rain. 
when cotton is ready to pick, nothing good happens to cotton besides sunshine. If it loses fiber quality, it loses strength, it loses brightness, we get paid for our cotton according to how bright it is, just like your copy paper. You know, you've got 90 or 100 or 120, and the brighter white your cotton is, the more you get paid for it. And you know that white Sunday shirt that you want, you know, you don't want that thing to be kind of dull gray. It takes sunshine. Nothing is whiter than cotton when it pops out of the bowl. And now we had all this rain. The peanuts that were dug and on top of the ground for drying were waiting for when the combines could come and the ground would stand up to hold them. The fields were boggy and waterlogged. Many of the peanuts that were harvested were either graded hard or rejected at the buying stations. When we go to church, we still drive through cotton fields that have never been picked. They never will be picked. The ground was wet. It rained and rained. Some of the men bought tracks for their harvesting equipment. Some of them bought more dew wheels. It was just an attempt to try to salvage or get some return for a whole spring and summer's work and investment on seed, fertilizer, labor, and equipment costs. Unfortunately for some families, their opportunity to plant another crop is over. The banker has told them they can't get another loan and have another try. And there is more than enough sadness and despair to go around in many of these communities. It wasn't for the lack of cotton pickers. It wasn't for the lack of peanut harvesters. But there was simply too much water. And so I ask you just now, what is hindering the harvest of souls from every tribe, every nation in our day and time? Is it too wet? Are the obstacles too great, too difficult? The task at hand is pressing on us, but we just don't have what it takes. What is it? There are two seasons in every farmer's life where time is of essence. Seed time and harvest. Tonight, as Christian people, we are planting and planting and watering in anticipation that harvest for souls for eternity. Jesus tells us there's no lack of those um, who want to grow the church through missions and personal evangelism. But he said there is a lack of people who have a vision, a lack of those who want to get involved. So at the end of a very long day, a very long and tiring day, meeting the needs of others, Jesus says this in Matthew 9, and Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Have we heard God's call? I'd like to take a lesson from the boy Samuel. You know that story, you know, Samuel goes to bed and he hears somebody talk to him in the night. And when you hear somebody talk to you in the night, it, does God talk to you in the night? I've got to answer that question. If God talks to me after a while, I don't know. But I want to read about Samuel. And the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. And you know, we don't know about that. The word of the Lord is right here. You have it in your hand. You have many copies at home. But what if we lived in a time when God seldom spoke or we didn't have the printed word in our own language or we'd be so welcome if somebody would come tell us. And one night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was laying down in his usual place. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord, and the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel answered, Here am I. And the Lord came and stood there calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. No, Samuel was unsure of the call of God in his life. Um, perhaps he was 12 or 14 years old. We don't know. That's what some commentators suggested. Maybe he was younger. But God wanted to speak to Samuel. He wasn't speaking to Eli. It was Samuel he wanted. You know, sometimes we wait for God to speak to Brother Leon or some other person. But we need to be open to God speaking to us and what he has for us. He don't just speak through the ministers, the church leaders. We've been privileged beyond any people, any people group ever living before us to know and to have the inspired word of God. And often we can feel and know God's call in our life through the reading of his word and understanding his word combined with the prodding that comes to us by his Holy Spirit. Sometimes God calls us through the voice of the church, the local body, where we tie in, identify, and live out our faith in practical holiness. You know, it's kind of fashionable anymore for people not to have church membership, to not tie in. I'm going to tell you, you're missing a blessing because it's through the church body that God often talks to us that others can see and encourage us and focus and point us towards ministry. It's very interesting as we flip through the Old Testament and see how God called others besides the boy Samuel to do his specific work in a specific place and time. Abraham was called to leave his home country you know, my heart is blessed. I was at the Goods' house, and then I was at, at Rich's and his wife's house. And, you know, they left the good land up, up north. They say it's really good up there. And they came down here. And what a blessing it's been to your church, I'm sure. And I'm not getting a slam at Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, but I'm trying to make a connection. I left Rockingham County, Virginia, and they say life begins over there, but it's not so. Abraham was called to move 
to a country where that God would show him. Moses was called to leave several hundred thousand, if not a million or more, slaves and refugees to the promised land. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I read those verses the other night. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then it goes on to tell how the angel came and purified his lips. And I want to read um, <clears throat> verse 5 through 8. I didn't read those verses the other night. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin is purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then said I, Send me. And so I ask you this evening, have you heard and have you responded to the call of God on your life? And have you poured your heart and life and energy into that work for God's honor and glory? Have we done like Jonah and run away from his call and pursued our interests and our ambitions on our own? You know, it didn't work out too good for Jonah. And just because God didn't get us swallowed by a big fish don't mean he's happy with us when we take our own way. The cares of life, the dedication to vocation, and maybe even involvement in the program of the church can sometimes make us lose our sense of calling and blow us dangerously off course. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we have the story of, of when Elisha was called. Elisha was doing his spring plowing with 24 oxen. Perhaps he had a three-bottom, four-bottom plow, we don't know, but he must have been a real man of the soil, perhaps the biggest farmer in his county. And when God's call came to him, he quit farming and he started to preach. He went home and said goodbye to his mom and dad. And they had a big send-off for him and they took his plows and they burned them for a sacrifice. They butchered them oxen and they had a big feast. And if they butchered all 24 of them, that would feed a lot of people. Take a lot of plows to make that much firewood. Well, that's the indication that it would give. Perhaps they just burned part of it. I don't know. But the Bible says in chapter 19, verse 21 of 1 Kings, that he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. I don't have time to give you all the details of the many more godly men and women that God called and used to abandon their personal ambitions to follow God's call in their life. But you can read about a lot of them in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Do we really believe that there are thousands of souls going to a lost and godless eternity every day? And if so, what do we intend to do about it? 
in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, is a, a description of humanism. Um, I'd like to read it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And since they may be known about God is plain, and because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world is, and is God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, humanism says there's a little bit of God in all of us and that we're all pretty good. And if we're given enough money in a nice neighborhood, we'll pan out. Well, that's not the case. But God does says that he's left enough evidence in nature and in creation that every man should have a question in his mind about God and have his heart turned towards God. And so your presence here this evening would indicate that, that you have an interest in godly things and um, a concern about your spiritual well-being, the, the spiritual well-being of your families. And I want to commend you for that. I remember as a small boy sitting at the dinner table one day and hearing my father ask the hired man who was a, from a very conservative Anabaptist sect. He, they drove uh, horses and buggies. And uh, he asked this man, he was probably in his early 20s, and he says, so if you all don't practice and participate in evangelism, what happens to the people who never have the privilege of hearing the good news of salvation? And my neighbor man said something like this, and I'm sure he was on the spot. I wasn't very old, but I'm sure that he wished my dad wouldn't ask him that question. He said something like this, I guess God understands, and somehow if they're doing as good as they know, um, they'll be okay. Is that what the Bible says? Not my Bible. That's humanism. If you do as good as you know, you're going to be okay. And so we need to watch. We may not promote that. We may not say we believe that. But do we act like that? How engrossed or involved are you in the lives of lost people? The verses in Romans 1.20 would indicate that there's enough evidence in nature and creation to point us to a God. And then... Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that we all have a need to worship God and eternity is written on our hearts. Every man and woman wonders, where did I come from and what am I here for? And it makes us accountable. But how much better is it when somebody tells us and shows us the way? I told you the other evening about trying to, to grow orange trees when the University of Florida could care less if if I made it or not, it's kind of tough. It's a lot easier when there's somebody there to help you. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning or end. That's your and my job, is to help people find their way. Another translation says this. God makes everything happen at the right time. 
Yet none of us can ever fully understand all that he's done. He puts questions in our minds about the past and the future. And I think God is fair. No, it don't seem fair to us. Why were you born in a place and time where you can know God and know the gospel? When Chief Setting Bull may never have known. But it's not our responsibility to, to, to doubt God. Perhaps one of the most destructive and distracting things that can blow a mission-minded vision off course is to become a critical or judgmental in our relationships within our own church brotherhoods. When a church body or fellowship is not actively engaged in outreach to the lost and the downtrodden, we tend to resort to destructive, critical attitudes instead of being fruit producers, we turn our energies into being fruit inspectors. And I'd like to read a little reading by Jim Newson, evaluator or reconciler of the saved. If you don't become a reconciler of the lost, you will become an evaluator of the saved. There is something inherent in our nature that wants to see people right with God. And if we don't direct it at the lost, we will direct it at the saved. And then instead of pursuing sinners, we will spend our time policing saints. All of us have been called to be fishers of men. But when those that are called to fish don't fish, they fight. And when energy that is meant to be used outside the church is used inside the church, the results are often explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of reaching the lost, we criticize the saints. Instead of extending a helping hand, we point fingers, accusing fingers. And instead of helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. And sadly, the lost go unreached, and the poor remain unfed, and the confused remain unconsoled. But those who have been called to fish, when they actually fish, they flourish, and souls are reached, and lives are changed, and the world is impacted. Because of the temptation to put off until tomorrow, what the Spirit of God prompts your heart to do today, be careful. Be careful. Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from a living God, but encourage one another as long as it is today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, we have come to share in Christ if we hold boldly to the end the confidence that we had at first. Just as it has been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I want to tell you about Uncle Roger. Aunt Gloria is my wife's next younger sister. And she went to Winnipeg Bible College, maybe a bit out of rebellion, but perhaps her motives were pure, and she met Uncle Roger. 
Uncle Roger was an ethnic Mennonite. His last name was Neufeld. How much more pure can you get than that? He was from Russian Mennonite descent. Mennonite by birth and practice and culture. Evangelical free by denomination. I think he was a spiritually alert young man. The family liked him. We liked him. He was a nice man. Now, he wasn't a conservative Mennonite, but I think his heart was right that he was zealous about spiritual things. Eventually, uh, Roger and Gloria, who we call Uncle Roger and Aunt Gloria, my children, you know why I call them Uncle Roger. They never tied in. They moved to Winnipeg, and they went to a church. The pastor married them, but they never joined up. They just went to this church a while, and they went to that church a while, and then they moved to Ottawa, where he went to work on his doctoral degree. And again, never tied into a church, and eventually quit going to church altogether. We would see Uncle Roger and Aunt Glory from time to time. They came with their two small children to visit us one or two times, maybe. And we went to Ottawa to see them. And uh, we would see them occasionally at family get-togethers in Red Lake. And it was a fun time. It was an amicable time. But every year we saw them, or every few years when we saw them, we were kind of shocked at the drift and the way things were. Uh, there was a certain, alar we were alarmed at a certain erosion of faith and practice. And their children were born and raised with secular values. Sometime after the fact, we found out that Uncle Roger and Aunt Gloria were divorced. Later we found out that they both had new partners. They never remarried, they both just had new partners and didn't live in purity. And by now their children were teenagers and they were angry children. And um, shocking, you know, a pretty blonde haired girl would show up with bright pink hair and many other things. One time last fall, I, we heard, I don't remember if it was an email or there's just not much in common with worldly people and Christian people, even though they came from the same family, except a certain DNA. I mean, our life is, is church and church and, and church people and church program and our farm and our relatives, and they don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. It's kind of tough. And, we found out that Uncle Roger had pancreatic cancer. I said, I need to go see Uncle Roger. I need to talk to Uncle Roger about his soul. And then we were in Red Lake the uh, 1st of December for a birthday party for Grace's dad. And Aunt Gloria showed up and she whispered to us, I dropped the children off at Roger's the other day and he don't look good. He pours a stick. He don't look good at all. He just wanted to know that that he appreciated the email you sent, and that was it. And I made a vow to myself that when I got home, 
And when I got done teaching my terms at Bible school, I was going to fly to Ottawa, and I was going to visit Uncle Roger, and I was going to talk to him about his soul again. And at Christmas time, an email came. Uncle Roger died last night. I failed Uncle Roger by trying to keep the family peace. I wish I could change those events. Aunt Gloria told us when she divorced him, he's not family anymore, he's gone. Don't bother with him. And I tried to keep the family peace. Living a life of denial is not worth a lost eternity. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I wish I could change what happened to Uncle Roger. Developing a personal sensitivity for what I can do and where I can help. Why is there a continual plea for those who will commit and be involved in the outreach and ongoing work of the church? Is it possible that we never considered ourselves as willing and an able candidate? It seems it's always someone else should go, not me. I've often noticed that mission board personnel are very willing to send other families, other people's children to missions, but forget that their own are capable too. I don't know if it never occurred to them or not, but you know, I see so many mission boards pleading and begging, but yet their families are not involved either. It, it bothers me. Not too long ago, while in Nicaragua to visit one of our sons, I met the John Penner family. What a family! What an encouragement! What a blessing! You know, there's a middle-aged family with teenagers, and they packed it all. I guess they come from Jason's church, right? Man, you can't be around those people long, and the vision and the, the commitment they made. You know, they could be up there playing hockey and doing cool things. But they're down there in Nicaragua. No, it doesn't suit us all. I mean, God has different things for all of us. But, you know, I'm sure Mr. John could be making big bucks making cabinets. But he went to Nicaragua with his teenagers. And I was so blessed by that family. Some years ago, a mission organization that um, I'm aware of, who operates kind of in our community some, was looking for staff and nobody would go. Nobody, they couldn't get anybody. And one of the board members leased his dairy out and took his boy Thomas out of school and moved to Romania. And uh, he was there a year or two. How long were y'all there, Thomas? When Daryl determined that there was something wrong with, with him and he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and ultimately came home and passed away. 
But he left a testimony. He couldn't take his farm with him anyway. And that challenged me as well. I've met parents who won't let their children serve in VS, but are quick to encourage them to chase a dollar, to go into debt, which really ties them up and makes them unable for service. They're making payments on that snowboard or, or that other cool toy. Moms and dads, your children really do know what your values are. And if you're service-oriented and generous with your time, and talents and money. They know your view of the urgency of the work of the church and if lost people really do go to hell. Do we have our sights on retirement and the good life, living the North American Canadian dream? I can think of an elderly couple that used to come to Red Lake every summer when I lived there. John and Mary Yoder from Kelowna, Iowa. Do you know them? Um, he was a retired construction worker. He turned his business over to his boys, and, and she was like my mama. She'd come up there, and she'd patch my blue jeans, and she helped me make a sleeping bag, and she just was, and he'd help us young guys with building projects. They could have been home, you know, playing with the grands and drinking sodas and sitting under the shade tree, but they were up there helping where they could until they got too crippled. They blessed me, those people. Dr. Charles McCoy never married. He devoted his years instead to pastoring a church and pursuing a plethora of educational goals. And at the age of 72, when his denomination required that he retire from ministry, he reluctantly left his Baptist pulpit in Oyster Bay, New York. Now, he wasn't sure what to do with himself, and over the years he had accumulated seven different college degrees, and now they all seemed futile. I just lie here on my bed thinking my life's over. I haven't really done anything yet. And if I've been a pastor of this church for so many years and nobody really wants me much, what have I done for Christ? I've spent an awful lot of time working for degrees, but I haven't won very many people to the Lord. But just a week after his retirement, he met a missionary who abruptly invited him to come to India to preach. Dr. McCoy deferred, citing his age. He'd never been overseas, he'd never ever traveled across America, he'd never flown in an airplane. He couldn't imagine traveling to India. Furthermore, he hadn't the money. The thought occurred to him, however, and it nagged at him. And so a white-haired old Dr. Charles McCoy announced he was going to India. He sold his car and a few possessions and bought a one-way plane ticket. By yourself? Ask his horrified friends, to India? Well, what if you fall ill? And what if you should die in India? Well, it's just as close to heaven from there as it is from here, he replied. And he arrived in Bombay with his billfold, his Bible, and his passport all of which were promptly taken by pickpockets, and he was left with only the clothes on his back and the address of some missionaries that he had clipped from a magazine. The man who had originally invited him had remained in America, and when he showed up on the missionary's doorstep, they weren't even sure what to do with him. 
day or so later, Mr. McCoy declared that I'm going to visit the mayor of Bombay. <laughs> Don't waste your time, advised his new friends. And after several years of trying, they had never been able to see the mayor. Well, now Mr. McCoy, he prayed about it and he went anyway. And he presented his calling card to the receptionist and she looked at it carefully and then disappeared through a door. And returning, she told him to come back at three o'clock. Mr. McCoy returned that afternoon to find a reception in his honor attended by the most important civic leaders in Bombay. It seemed the city fathers had been greatly impressed by Mr. McCoy's tall frame. He was 6'4", and his distinguished white hair, and especially the long string of degrees after his name on his calling card. He was a very important man, they thought, perhaps even a representative from the President of the United States. Dr. McCoy spoke for a half an hour, giving his testimony about Jesus Christ. And at the end, he was politely applauded by the assembled crowd. And afterward, he was approached by a man in an impressive military uniform who invited him to speak to the students at his school. And as it turned out, his school was India's equivalent of West Point. And after his first address, Dr. McCoy was invited back repeatedly. Invitations soon poured in from all over India, and he began an itinerant ministry of preaching the gospel. In Calcutta, he started a Chinese church, and he was asked to do the same in Hong Kong, and he was invited to Egypt and the Middle East, traveling everywhere on a shoestring and with the energy that he hadn't had since he was 16. His evangelistic ministry stretched to 16 years, and at the age of 88, he found himself in India, in Calcutta. His host dropped him off at the Grand Hotel, and as he stepped out of the car, he said, You know, I'm speaking at the YMCA tonight. I have time for a cup of tea and a bit of rest. I don't want to be late for the meeting, and he ducked into the hotel, took the elevator up to his floor, and suddenly the Lord called him home. It was just as close to heaven from India, as he said, as from America. Dr. Charles McCoy wonderfully embodied the final words of Psalm 92. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no righteous unrighteousness in him. What will your and my generation be remembered for? Many or not, if not most of us, have ancestors who were persecuted or imprisoned for their faith. Some were burned at the stake, Others were drowned or boiled in pots of all. Is the Anabaptist movement now known for its passion for God's kingdom? Or are we now known for nice farms, trade skills, storage barns, you know, made by the Mennonites? Sorry, Paul. Or pies and other food items? 
Do we love our culture more than we love our God? I have not often traveled to Pennsylvania, but I have often been asked if I've ever known about or eaten at Shady Maple. Or if you travel to Sarasota, Florida, have you been to Yoder's or Troyer's, now known as Der Dutchman, part of the chain of Anabaptist restaurants in Ohio? Is that our calling as an Anabaptist people? Beware of food and gluttony and world hunger. We need to develop a sensitivity to those who don't have and share as able and restrain our own appetites. Galatians 6.10 As we have opportunity, especially unto those who are of the household of faith, learn to develop a conscience against heaping so many resources on yourself when so many have so much need. My wife Grace and I have three living sons. Only fairly recently the youngest two returned home to the farm after finishing their terms in Nicaragua. Yes, I felt a bit guilty having them come home, but the girlfriends were calling. I couldn't blame them. I met a girl in Canada that stole my heart as well. So after much prayer and counsel from others, we decided to build a new dairy facility to accommodate the needs of several growing families and transition to the next generation. And now in the months since completing the project, I'm often asked by many or referred to as the man who built a new dairy barn. I've become a bit weary of it. Could I not be known as Noah of old that Carl was a righteous man and blameless among the people of his time and he, Carl, walked with God? I have a dream that one day the young people of our churches will be known by their commitment to missions and sacrificial sacrifice to others instead of sporting events, tournaments, and the price and quantity of their toys, learned from an example lived and shown to them by their mothers and fathers. And there was a time when young men that were physically able gave several years of their time in missions and service to humanity in lieu of military service. And while the mandatory draft has not been active for over 40 years, it should not dampen our commitment to do service to others, missions, and the ongoing work of the church. I know it's probably time to close, but I'd like to read you a book. Is that okay? One Brother, Two Missions. How many of you have read this book? Well, I'm going to read it to you. This book is out of print. Grace went online to find one, and there was one in Europe for $1,400. There was one in Canada for $700 and some dollars. Thank the Lord she sleuthed around a little more, and she got me one for $4.99. Uh, Brother Leon, CLP needs to publish this book. 
Let me read it. I wish you all were sitting right up here. We could look at the pretty pictures. Two Brothers, One Mission by Mary Fretz. Can y'all at all see this? Paul, can you see my book? I can see you. All right. A cool evening breeze blowed gently on the trees and onto the porch of the Taylor farmhouse in, in Michigan. Myron and Walter sat in silence, both deep in thought. Their young wives were chatting inside as they washed the supper dishes from kitchen. In the kitchen, I'm sorry. See those nice young men, nice beards and suspenders? <clears throat> Finally, Walter spoke. Your news about going back to Africa surely surprised us, Myron. Well, how does Ada feel? Is she willing to leave the home you and your family have now here in Michigan to go start a new mission in Africa? And how do her parents feel? Well, Walter Myron said, Ada and I met on the mission field, and when we were married, we promised each other to always follow the Lord wherever those paths would lead us. And I know Ada's father is Bishop Jacob Eagle, no, Engle, but we haven't told him yet. We wanted to tell you and Melinda first to be the, know of our, the first to know our news. Well, We'll visit them very soon, though. Walter wasn't sure. Africa is a long ways to go, Myron, and there is still only a few missionaries who've ever gone there from the Brethren in Christ Church. Maybe you should wait until a few more have prepared the way for this new mission you're thinking of. Are there any good roads where you're thinking of going? And what about the houses? And are there doctors for your children? And where will your girls go to school? Myron tried to ease his brother's mind. And Walter, Walter, all you can say is likely true, but we know that God will care for us in any of those situations, just as he has done before. The mission board has invited us to be missionaries and share the good news of Jesus with the people of Sikalongo, where we are thinking of going. And there is a great need to share the good news of Jesus' love. And we will probably be asked to go and begin a work in Zimbizi Valley. Ada and I feel very privileged to serve the Lord wherever he so needs us. And the mission board has opened that door to us. And they sat in silence. And finally Walter broke in with a question about another thing that worried him. Myron, who is going to support you and Ada? And where will the money come from to help you and eat? To eat and live? Well, Walter, that, that's another concern. We'll have to care for most of our own needs ourselves, but again, we must trust the Lord for that. Ada and I believe our needs will be supplied. Melinda and Ada had finished the dishes and now joined Walter and Myron on the veranda. And the conversation quickly turned to family and friends and nothing else was said that night about the upcoming move. This happened in 1901. <clears throat> A week later went by before Walter and Myron got to meet again. 
And during that time, Melinda and Walter had done some serious thinking and talking. When Walter saw his brother again, he said, Myron, Melinda and I have an offer to suggest you and Ada. When your family goes to Africa, Melinda and I will stay here in Michigan and farm, and we will send some of the money we earn to you. We can live on less, and in that way, we will also share in being missionaries in Africa. Oh, Walter Myron said, that would be such a sacrifice for you and Melinda, but what a generous offer for you to share in our ministry that way. Is it, sh it is surely an answer to our prayers. Well, there's just one thing, Myron. This is to be a secret. Melinda and I want no one to know about our arrangement. And as you wish, Walter, and may God bless you and Melinda. And from that point on, preparations moved very quickly, and soon Myron and Ada and their children were on board a mo an ocean vessel bound for South Africa. And after they arrived in Africa, they boarded a train and began to trip to Choma. And then they took an ox cart, and finally they arrived at the location where Sikilongo Mission would one day be built and established. Now, Walter and Melinda kept their promise and worked to support Myron and Ada's ministry, and no one knew. They were often criticized and misjudged by neighbors and family who figured Walter was just a poor provider. His buildings were not always painted. His crops did not do as well as others for lack of fertilizer. And the neighbors saw his rusty old car. But neither Walter or Melinda told the secret of how their money was being used. When Walter labored in his fields in Michigan, his heart was way far away. He knew that he was a missionary too. Myron was always thankful for his brother's support that made it possible for him to serve God in Africa. For 25 years, Myron and Ada worked among the African people. They helped the sick, they built schools, they shared the news of Jesus' love and established churches. Myron also worked with the Europeans who were helping to build roads in remote areas. Myron and African Christians would often go and follow the road workers into their remote camps and share stories about Jesus around the campfires at night. And on one of these visits to the work camps, the event happened that would cost Myron Taylor his life. A lion had been prowling around the camp, and at night it frightened the workers. Mr. Walter, the European supervisor, set a large trap to catch the lion. And even though the lion was eventually caught, it somehow managed to escape from the trap, but not without being injured. Now, Myron and Mr. Walter knew that an injured lion would be angry and even more dangerous. Myron wanted to track the lion and shoot it, but Mr. Walter suggested waiting to allow the lion to become weaker. Not willing to wait too long, Myron finally decided to take three African brothers with him and look for the lion. 
And after a few miles through the bush, they were able to track the lion. But now the lion was very angry because of his injuries. And Myron loaded his rifle and shot twice. And when he stopped to reload the gun, the angry lion charged. And the men with, lion, with Myron were frightened. And they ran up a nearby tree, leaving Myron alone to defend himself. And eventually the lion left, and when the men came down from the trees to try to help Myron, he had been badly injured by the lion. And one of them left to get Mr. Walter, who walked three miles to where the others waited with Myron. And they made a stretcher from branches and a blanket. So the men carried Myron all night through the hills and the woods to the mission. And after walking for hours, they finally arrived at the mission. And by now, Myron was very weak. One doctor was called from Choma, another called from 100 miles away. And they arrived by trolley during the night. Together, the two doctors decided to operate. But while they were attempting to save the life of the faithful missionary, Myron Taylor passed away. The next day, surrounded by his faithful wife, Ada, other missionaries and friends and scores of African people came who had come to love him. Myron was remembered and then buried. Now back in Michigan, word of Myron's death reached Walter and Melinda. The news made them sad, but they were happy to know that God had used their families together to share the love of Jesus with many people. And it wasn't until years later that the story was revealed how these two brothers had shared one missionary experience together. One brother stayed in Michigan and the other went to Africa, but both shared equally in telling the good news of Jesus' love in Zambezi, the valley of northern Rhodesia. And here's an old grainy black and white picture of them with their little girls. They were some sect of conservative Mennonite people. I read that book and I thought to myself, can this be a model for my family? I've got two boys that speak Spanish. And could some of us, you know, do a little better and cut back a little and send one of my boys back to Central America? But you know, that call can't come from me. It has to come from God. I told him about my dream. I hope the Lord smites him heavily. It has to be their dream. It has to be God's call. But I gave my boys up to God if that's what he wants for them. I'm not going to give an invitation tonight. I just hope that you were as challenged as much as I was to share the gospel with those who've never heard, with those who've heard and need to be told again, and with those who've grown cold, the Uncle Rogers and you're in my family. Everybody has them.